Coming up on this week's show, the next mini console has been announced. How to play Elden Ring on Game Boy. And we get the inside story on Road Rash with Randy Bree. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you want to read all about the foundations of the video game industry, check out Atari 2600 and 7800, a visual compendium detailing how Atari kick-started gaming in the early 70s and dominated the industry for the next decade. Looking at the systems, the games that changed it all, you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 331, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's podcast, every single weekend, taking you on a journey inside the world of classic video games. And of course, bringing you up to speed on all the big stories from the last seven days and chatting to a veteran of the video games industry, and this week, my word, Road Rash. We can talk more about that with our special guest, Randy Breen. We'll tell you more about that in just a minute. Now, actually, you know, I did say that we bring you up to speed on everything that's been happening over the last week. There was a couple of big stories that we missed out on on last week's episode because, admittedly, we never like to miss a week, and Joe and I were on holidays. We recorded a little bit early, didn't we, the week before? But that does mean we missed out on the massive news about the... uh, Mega Drive Mini it's 2. The we'll uh, curse of recording early is oh. as soon as you record it, then you're done oh. and all the news comes out the next <laughs> it, day. It happens all the time. I'm not going to say what, because we'll have to talk about it next week, but something has literally just been announced while we've been on, literally within the last five minutes. So like, it's just, it is the curse. It happens all the time to us. Like, we'll finish, we record on Tuesday nights, we, we will finish, and then literally one of us will put something in our Facebook chat and just be like, have you seen this new Sonic game? It's just been announced. <laughs> and we're like, brilliant. You know what we need then? A patron stretch goal, daily retro hour episode. Yeah, oh gosh. That could be a, oh, that that could be a <laughs> thing, <laughs> daily. They would decline, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, I mean, it has been a, you know, a very relaxing week for me. I've been a, you know soaking up the sunshine. Joe's actually been um, checking out some seaside arcades over the last week. I loved your pictures <laughs> yeah. that you shared on our uh, Insta. Yeah, I went up to um, Scarborough on the Yorkshire Yorkshire Seaside uh, with my mum and my daughter and wife. Uh, just a little caravan holiday, taking it old school. Haven't done anything like that in a while. And it was nice, you know, I haven't I haven't been up, up that way in decades, to be honest. And uh, checked out all the uh, Seaside arcades and it was fun. Um, obviously, you know, I posted on our Facebook and socials and stuff that it's obviously changed very much. And obviously I wasn't like expecting to be like, oh, here's House of the Dead, here's Simpsons Arcade. Like I, I, I'm not an idiot. I know arcades aren't like that anymore. It is mainly gambling machines, claw machines, yeah. 2P pushers, um, lots of virtual reality games, loads and loads of VR games. But I did manage to find a couple of old schoolish racing games, Daytona. A few, a few gems there. Were yeah, they? yeah. I found Daytona USA, uh, which was pretty cool. Found an old... Um, Ghost Recon Squad, I think it's called Ghost Squad Sega Cabinet, which was really cool. Um, and then found the Tomb Raider, the new Tomb Raider, uh, had an arcade machine, which was really hard. It was really cool. I played that. Yeah, it, it's like it, multiple people, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, four, pl- yeah, four player. Thousands of people. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it's a shooter. It was a shooter. So um, shooter screen, tomb, first person shooter, tomb, but it's like tomb a Raider. rail shooter. Isn't yeah, it? it's a rail shooter, but the guns were like the Time Crisis guns. They had the recoil on them, which I thought was really cool, but really hard. You know, I, I I like to think I'm quite good at like shooters, you know, like Time Crisis and Hazard and stuff. But 
this was particularly difficult. But it was really, the main thing was it was just really nice to get away. And You know, actually, I think if I went to Scarborough again, though, I mean, last time I was there was probably about 1990. Yeah, you're old stomping the, um... ground, isn't it, Scarborough? <laughs> well, we, we used to go there in the summer, yeah, quite a bit. And it was, um, I remember playing the Sega R360 for the first time mm. on the on the seafront of Scarborough. And obviously, like you said, you know, Simpsons. And in my mind, it is still like that. Yeah. So it might depress me a bit if I went back these days and it wasn't all there D- anymore. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it, it, it looks like that. Like, it's very old school and old fashioned. But I liked that. You know, the arcades have, have still got that real... They've not been decorated in a while and stuff. But it's just, yeah. it's all modern games and stuff. It was fun. Blew my wife's mind. I, I uh, won two claw machines on my first two goes. Um, which absolutely blew her mind and won some Sonic teddies, like a little Knuckles teddy and stuff, which she gave to my daughter. Um, some uh, major cool points for you there, mate. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear the uh, the decor hasn't been updated. Probably still my, my vomit stain on the... Oh, yeah, uh, maybe. Right next to the uh, the Golden Axe arcade machine. <laughs> <laughs> Having too much candy floss after going on the R360. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we are getting out and about again, which is the main news. And I mean, actually, we are going to be going uh, doing a an amazing retro gaming event that Ravi and I went to um couple of summers ago pre-pandemic didn't we which is amazing to see that it's going to be back on we're going to be back up on stage doing panels again for the first time in a couple of years at the wonderful retro messa in norway now this is i mean we've done events all over the world this has always been one of my favorite events to attend it's a really nice event like um the whole kind of scandinavian area we, we get to meet a lot of people from there so you i remember last time there were people from finland there were there were people from the Arctic as well. and uh, We have a surprising amount of listeners in, in Norway in that area. Yeah, and it's, it's just, it's, it's quite a small event. Norway's a small country, you know, but it's just got so much passion and it's so focused. The only thing that gets me is the uh, one hour of darkness at night. So I can never sleep at the <laughs> event. I just have to like drink through it. Yeah, so it's um, we're going to be doing this on the weekend of the 20th and 21st of August. If you're anywhere near, it's uh, Sandyfjord, isn't it, in Norway? Yeah. Um, wonderful event. So um, if you're looking for something to do this summer, you want to come and hang out with us, and uh, we're going to be doing a few live panels as well. We'll put the details in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into all these big news stories, the Mega Drive 2, that Resident Evil 4 remake, this week's special guess my word, you and I were so hyped to do this one, Ravi. Being, you know, lifelong fans of Road Rash. I mean, I love my racing games, but there's something about being able to play a racer where you can actually lean over off your bike and punch your opponent in the face. <laughs> Mate, I absolutely adored Road Rash. Like, um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad ran a, a fine art computer department at the university, and they'd all have all these Amiga machines, and they'd all be using them for, like, animation and stuff and i just had a copy of road rash and i'd go in there load it up and the students would be like you can play road rash on this and we just like i probably ruined a lot of people's projects <laughs> by distracting them with road rash it was such a good title it went on with so many good developments as well i remember the 3do version was absolutely awesome as well later on with the digitized stuff and you know i think it's one of these series that could do so well these days and it's like one of these lost gems but randy worked on so many titles and he's got a huge industry background he worked on one that you loved as well dan fade to black yeah i mean i was a big fan of the original flashback game by delphine software and one of my still probably in my top 10 games of all time um fade to black was the one that came out on the playstation um i believe the pc might have got a version of it too when it went 3d and i must admit it took me quite a bit to get my head around you know the, the kind of transition to 3d um 
as a lot of games then did kind of struggle with that, didn't they? Including Road Rash 3D that yeah. we talk um, to Randy about as well. A very interesting time, and obviously working for Electronic Arts in that era, I mean, there's so much going on, such a big change in the industry from the 80s to the 90s. And then we kind of go into um, Indiana Jones uh, and the Infernal Machine as well. So there's lots in this interview, and he's a really interesting guy as well. So we're going to get the story on mainly Road Rash. That's mainly what we'll talk about in this interview, but also touching on, you know, Fate of Black and... Um, <laughs> a very kind of obscure game, Labyrinth of Time. Yeah, I don't know if anyone else remembers that apart from me. I remember it was like a mist style game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. For the, for the CDTV, God. Yeah, can you get any more obscure than that? <laughs> so, uh, a lot in this interview with this week's wonderful guest, Randy Breen. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. So the story that everyone tweeted is about last week, guys. How have you missed this? Sega have announced a new mini console. We didn't miss it. <laughs> we just recorded ahead. We need to get that clear. But so many people, yeah, even on our Facebook page, people putting it on our on our page and stuff like that, which we love because of it is tough sometimes to get, you know, all the, the news articles that we do get and stuff like that. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it, it is helpful when we get these. But we definitely didn't miss uh, the Mega Drive Mini 2 announcement which is really i was in my jacuzzi in turkey <laughs> reading about this thing damn is, is it mega now? drive or genesis like uh, it's mega doing... drive it's it's okay. it's, a, it's a japanese announcement it will obviously be the genesis 2 in america um but so far they've only announced it as the mega drive 2 with a japanese release date um which is october 27th this year for 9980 yen which is $75 about about the same in pounds, about seventy pounds, which I think is how much the first one was. And obviously, the first one came out in October twenty nineteen, so three years since the last one. Um, obviously, Mega Drive Mini Two. It's it's based on the Mega Drive Two, uh, so the smaller square unit. Obviously, they've only shown off the Japanese one so far, so it's got like the pink control, uh, the pink like cartridge flaps, and it's got a uh, different coloured. It's got a silver and a and a blue button, whereas the, the British Mega Drive 2 was black and red. Um, yeah. So I'm sure we will get that because they did that with the Mega Drive 1. They gave us the, the British-looking one, you know, in, in Power Region and stuff, so, which is really cool. But what's really interesting about it is um, it's 50 games. The last one was 42. This one's going to be 50. Um, but it looks as though half of them are going to be Sega CD games. Which is yeah. So there are different games that are on there. So a lot of people are like, yeah. oh, they're just repackaging the first one. But it's, no, yeah, no. I, I, I think hardware wise, they probably are just like making a new case for it and putting, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, but but then adding new titles and stuff. To to me, I'm not so inspired by this mini. I, I'm, I'm yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really that bothered to be honest. Like, I'm, I will yeah. probably, I will probably more than likely buy it because if I'm a Sega fanboy. Um, I think it's, and I think you raise a good point with the hardware thing there, which is something I wanted to bring up, um, which is kind of two stories into one. But I, I think it's really cool that they're doing the Mega CD in there, but I don't, I think you're completely right, Ravi. I don't think they've changed the hardware. I think it's the exact same heart um, on the it's inside. It's like a transplant, just, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and they've just changed yeah. the case. Um, I'll quickly go through what games have been announced so far. I think there's 12 so far. So we've got Slipheed, which is a Mega CD game, Shining Force CD, Sonic CD, Mansion of the Hidden Souls for the Mega CD, Pop Full Mail for CD, Virtual Racing for the Mega Drive, Bonanza Bros, Shining in the Darkness Mega Drive, Thunder Force 4, Magical Toroto, and Fantasy Zone, which is a new Mega Drive port, apparently. 
So some pretty interesting games on there so far. Some really hard to get a hold of Mega CD games, which is cool. I'm really hoping Night Trap is on yeah. there. <laughs> I think that I think that'll be wicked. I think it's weird this choice of games. So like you look at like Virtua Racing, and that mm. was one of these carts that had extra mm. extra things in there, and also there was extra stuff on the Mega CD. Do you think by putting these Mega CD titles in it and stuff, they're trying to define it from the original, like, because there wasn't much definition other than a redesign and a little bit of improvements originally between the Mega Drive 1 and 2. But maybe with the Mini, they're trying to market it so it seems a bit more advanced, you know. So, interesting that you should say that. Um, So, there has been, since this was announced, there has been articles released. Uh, This came from Famitsu magazine. And this is an interview with the hardware producer, the lead producer of the Mega Drive Mini 2. Uh, I'm going to butcher his name, as I always do. Yosuke Okanari, I believe his name is. Um, And essentially, he addresses the fact that it isn't a Sega Saturn Mini and it isn't a Sega Dreamcast Mini. Um, So I won't go through it verbatim. But essentially, what he says is, of course, we know people want the Sega Saturn Mini and the Dreamcast Mini. Of course, we completely understand that. But if they're being perfectly honest, it's actually really difficult for manufacturing and new chipsets during the pandemic. So if he said, if we forged ahead with a Saturn Mini anyway, it would be extremely expensive. And the likelihood would be that a Saturn Mini would cost the same as an authentic modern console. Yeah, looking at the uh, Saturn emulation, it's hard to do. Yeah. So same with the Dreamcast, you know. So so they're, they're fully aware that it is just a redo of the, of the first mini <laughs> and they're putting different games on it. And essentially the same, it's the same hardware being used, but that hardware is powerful enough to run the Sega CD games, maybe 32 X games. That'd be really cool. If we get, well, I was going to ask that because virtual racing, I remember that there was a 32 X version of that. Wasn't there? And I wonder which, which version they're going to put it's on It's the here, Mega right? Drive version. It says, right. um, yeah. but yeah, it'd be interesting to see if they do the 32 X games on there as well. But I think it's cool that they're just being honest and they're just like, yeah, we it, it would cost loads for us to do a, a Saturn Mini or Dreamcast Mini at like, the moment. The reason um, I would buy it is for Sonic CD. Yeah. And like, I just think if they're going to release a Mega CD one in the future, which they could do, are they kind of shooting themselves in the foot by adding in Sonic CD and a few of these are like Shining Force and stuff? Yeah, it, it does beg that question of why have they just not done a, a, Sega, a Sega CD Mini? Because w- would like Night Trap then be the... Sega CD Mini launch title. Well, yeah. well, they, they, they yeah. did. They did do the little um, kind of fake Tower of Power, yeah, didn't they, they did. for the original one? So they might do like a Mega Drive 2 that you can slot on the side. Um, a Mega CD 2, you know, that'll fit on the side of this. So it'll look like it, maybe. I, I can imagine them releasing that would like be, a dummy one of them. That would be fun if they did that. Yeah. Um, but long story short, it sounds as though, yeah, here's the Mega Drive 2. It, it looks cool. They've got the Sega CD games on there. Dreamcast and Saturn Mini ain't coming at the moment because it's too expensive mm. and we ain't got the chips. And, and, so. and I think that makes sense as well. We're talking about transplanting the hardware. If they're mm. running out of like, you know, ways to, 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 to make new pieces of hardware and it's harder with the shortages and everything, maybe just like, you know, having that old hardware retransplanted is uh, the easiest option for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I was never a huge fan of the aesthetic of the Mega Drive 2, you know, compared to the original one, I, I was in the Mega Drive 1, such a nice looking system. 
But I think, you know, the fact that really, I mean, if you're paying, if they do release it in the West, I mean, they haven't confirmed it yet, but they did say the aim of this project is something that will have global appeal. Mm. So I imagine that is kind of a confirmation that it will yeah. be coming out in the rest of the world. It's really, I mean, if, if it costs like 70 quid, it is a good way to get hold of some games that are actually quite hard to get hold of these days, a lot of those well, CD titles. Well, if you want to grab an, just a Sega CD, you know, an, an original authentic Sega CD, um, I haven't checked the prices recently, but I know they're £100 plus. You know, yeah. that was five, six years ago, you know, even for a, a Sega CD2. You know, the Sega CD1, I saw a boxed one for £500 on Instagram the other day. Like, so... You know, and then the games aren't cheap. I know Sonic CD isn't the most expensive game, but it'll probably you're probably looking almost half the cost for just the game for Sonic CD. As when I saw the Doncaster Gaming Market, it was fifty quid. There you go. Yeah, the one for so so this will be a much cheaper alternative. You know, like you say, seventy yeah. quid um, if you want to want to play these games. And you know, some of these Japanese ports uh, like you know Shining Shining Force CD and stuff like that. I'm I'm not even sure off the top of my head if some of these games even came out in power ter- territory. So, you know, to be able to, if we're going to get them over here, like for some hardcore fans, I, I imagine that's going to be a really big deal for them. Yeah, and for hardcore I mean, it, it makes sense that they're going to buy this. I mean, say you'll probably listen to our podcast and be like, you know, what would Joe buy? Yeah. <laughs> what can we put out that he's going to buy again? How can we make him buy the same big <laughs> Streets of Rage, Golden Axe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, cool to see something new from Sega. And, again, I totally understand that, you know, in the middle of a chip shortage, it is going to be difficult for them to do, like, a Dreamcast and Saturn. But, you know, they haven't ruled it out ever. I mean, it might happen when that kind of sorts itself out, hopefully. Uh, They obviously understand the demands there, but, you know, for now it looks like we're getting a Mega Drive Mini 2, hopefully before the end of this year. So I'll link up the announcement. You can check out the full games list. I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. But it seems you're going to be um, a little bit distracted anyway, Joe, because... The announcement last week, another big one, Resident Evil 4 it's, is getting a remake. It's in my diary, March 24th, 2023, taking the day off work, taking the day off retro hour, so I can blitz this game. Um, <laughs> not the most retro, I appreciate that, Resident Evil 4. The original came out in 2005, so 17 years ago, is that retro? It's retro enough. I, it's getting there. It's getting there, it's getting there. there. Um, yeah, Resident Evil 4 remake, this... I've been waiting for this for many years. It's been rumoured for about three years. Kind of, you know, we had obviously the Resident Evil 2 remake in 2019, and then we had the Resident Evil 3 remake in 2020, and then we got Resident Evil 8, which is Resident Evil Village in 2021. So it's kind of like, what's going to be next? And there's all these big rumours that Resident Evil 4 was coming, and then it came out on the Oculus Rift, didn't it? Which was kind of a VR version of, the original Resident Evil 4. So I was a little bit like, okay, so is this the remake or is there an actual remake? But yeah, last week at the Sony State of Play event, they announced a teaser trailer, State of Play trailer, the Resident Evil 4 remake, and it just looks... We we, we won't go into it too much because it's not retro, but it looks stunning. Like, I'm a modern gamer as I am, a retro gamer, and I know, Ravi, you, you, you like... You, you like your graphics and stuff as well. This game looks, oh, yeah. it, it looks absolutely beautiful. I think it's going to look well and truly next gen and it is going to have PlayStation VR uh, content on there as well for the VR too. I can't remember what that's called. I'm, I'm not that, not that modern, but I know there's a new PlayStation VR coming out and they've said that it's going to have, you know, compatibility with that and stuff. Um, it's getting a PC release as well as Xbox and uh, PlayStation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be on, good. it'll be on PlayStation yeah. 5, Xbox, Series X and, um, PC and stuff like that but 
so far we've not got much um but it is it's in the same vein as the resident evil 2 and resident evil 3 remake you know that looks like they're probably using the res the, the re engine which they made for resident evil 7 which i just think resident evil 2 remake i know you guys aren't big horror fan guys but like horror game guys but it's probably the most beautiful I've modern still not played it and i'm a big resi resi 2 fan actually you should you I, should I, jump I, I on really it really need to get the graphics like, that, that I, appeals to me more i mean, I mean this I, one, b- yeah. beautiful might be not be the best word to describe a game where people are getting like their faces eating off and stuff like that but the graphics are phenomenal and the graphics on this look absolutely phenomenal i'm so excited for it resident evil 4 resident evil, resident evil series you guys know is like my favorite series of all time and it looks so far it looks bang on i know we've only seen like 30 40 seconds of it so far it looks absolutely bang on and I'm so, so, so excited for it. And that's me going to stop blabbering about it now. <laughs> well, I know the original games, I mean, we've, we've done, you know, episodes talking about our favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, if you listen to the After Hours podcast that we do, we kind of go more into this, but I know for you, that game kind of held a, a special place in your heart because it came out on the GameCube, Ye- which I know everyone kind of trashed the GameCube as being like a baby's toy. And yeah. then Resident Evil 4 came out on there. Yeah. You know, there's the whole big story about like how Capcom kind of sided with, game uh, with nintendo when it came to the sixth gen and i think it was the capcom 5 yeah the capcom 5 exclusives and it ended up being the resident evil remake and then resident evil 4 and resident evil 4 has the little like only four gamecube you know like in the corner of it for it then to come out on ps2 and every single console after that you know there is even you know ps4 and xbox one versions of the original resident evil 4 it's been re-released that many times you know on everything there's a wii version there's a PS3 version, Xbox 360 version, there's even, um, you know, iPhone versions of it and stuff like that. So, but it is a very, very special game for me. And, you know, to this day is regarded as, you know, it came out in 2005, such a game changer to like action horror games and just action games in general. It had been done before that over the shoulder shooter, but Resident Evil 4 was like the game that just like, it wrote, what's the word? Like it kind of wrote the textbook on like, that's how games should be from now on for those kind of games and the formula hasn't changed since then you know there's been some some duds with like resident evil 6 and stuff like that and but there's been i feel like the uncharted games and the modern tomb raider games and stuff they all kind of copy that kind of formula you know i feel so many games have so much to owe to resident evil 4 and then when they did resident evil 2 remake in the same style and the 3 remake which were just free got a little bit of hate because it was it was a bit of a short game but the remakes of them were just such good games as well. And it's the same team bringing this one. I'm so excited for it. I need to get an Oculus Rift 2 or I need to come and play yours, Dan, in the meantime to play the Resident Evil 4 VR to get myself even more hype. The hyped. Quest, isn't it? That's The, the Quest. I keep calling yeah, it, the, yeah. is it the Rift, the Quest? I can't the Rift's remember. the old school one, yeah. The old the school quest, one, the okay. Quest. Thank you, Ravi. The Quest, the Oculus Quest. People will probably screaming at me for the last five minutes there. Um, if you can't tell I'm excited, I'm, I'm really excited for this. I've got a feeling Capcom listen as well. They're like, what can we make Joe Bob? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, this is it. Sega and Capcom. We've got, what, what can we make him spend his money on again? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it does look really good though. I just want to check out. And what we know so far in the little trailer, we'll link that up. You've got about a year to wait for it, but everything we know so far at theretrohour.com. Now, we did mention our After Hours podcast, which is our patrons exclusive show that we do, because, you know, we do have a little patron that we run. You know, we don't like to talk about too much. 
But, you know, we do appreciate it when we get people on there who show us a bit of a support. Cause, I mean, that's what it is, really. We have a Patreon just to ensure that all the running costs of doing a weekly podcast are paid for. Think of it as a little tip jar where, well, you know, for the cost of um, as low as a cup of coffee once a month, you can just make sure that we can continue bringing you this podcast every single week and uh, bring you these incredible guests as well. Cause, you know, we put a lot of work into this. Even when we go on holiday, we make sure that it's covered. We never take a week off, do we? So we really appreciate all the support that we get on Patreon. And we're getting ready for uh, this month's Patrons Hangout as well. Um, next weekend, Sunday, twenty sixth of June. Yeah, that work for you guys. Yeah, no, that sounds good. That sounds perfect. Yeah. Father's Day this Sunday, <laughs> my second ever yeah, one. Yeah, so, so, so the twenty sixth sounds very, very good to me. Twenty sixth of June, we'll get that in the calendar, eight pm UK time. So, if you want to join us for that, it's really the hangouts are just a giggle, aren't they? It's where we get a bunch of us together. We kind of show our pickups and stuff. We just have a bit of a nerd out about everything retro don't we yeah absolutely crack open a few beers as well usually ravi always says it's a bit like a pub hangout find myself bringing like nuts and crisps to it sometimes as well <laughs> stuffing my face on camera it is really fun to hang out and you know i used to worry sometimes like oh god what are we all going to talk about but that doesn't happen like sometimes it, it gets to about you know 10 o'clock half 10 and we go right we better shoot off now because of Wives are probably tapping their, you know, tapping their watches going, you know, they've got to go to bed for work the next day. But, you know, it, it, it is really fun. And as you say, we just love like seeing people's collections and showing off what people have bought recently. And, you know, we learn a lot as well and learn a lot about like Facebook yeah. groups and stuff, you know, which have been going off. And, you know, like I say, we get a lot of news kind of stuff from there as well. So it's good for us. And then also I like to spend money when I'm on it. Because if I just love seeing what everybody else has been buying and then I just want it. But yeah, it is really fun. Yeah, so we'd love to see you at the next one happening again next weekend, Sunday, 26th of June, 8pm UK time. If you join us on Patreon this weekend, you'll see the link that will be posted in there. And we're going to be recording another episode of our Patrons Only podcast, the After Hours, um, that will be out next weekend too. So you get access to those. And also you get the main show early some weeks. I think actually last week, Patrons got it about a week early. Um, because we've been away. Um, you get extra patrons-only content on each week's show. You get it ad-free as well. But really, the main reason you're doing it, like I said, is just to continue keeping the show coming out every single week. And for backing us on Patreon, you will find your place in the most prestigious high-score table in the world of retro gaming, and that is the... Hall of Fame! And we've got some new patrons, so a massive thank you to our latest supporters. A big thank you, Ben Litchfield. Tom Gamble. A.B., and Jason H, who all backed us on Patreon over the last week or two. We really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to find your place alongside them in the Hall of Fame and back this show, all the details for our Patreon are at theretrohour.com. Right, then we're going to be talking Road Rash with our guest Randy Breen very soon. Before we do that, a few more stories to get into. Um, now we need to talk about a big announcement from uh, the Duke Nukem world in just a minute. But this is quite interesting. NASA have released a totally rad Roman telescope retro video game. Yeah, I, I find this quite interesting, actually. Um, it's, it's, it's basically a, a, one of these games that's kind of, a lot of companies have been doing them to like promote something, or, you know, it's just a fun little game. Um, it's about kind of going around and collecting galaxies, exoplanets, supernovas, like dark matter and black holes. Um the interesting thing is it's it's a web-based game, uh, but it's it's on an official NASA site. And I find this really interesting. Like, you know, space used to be one thing that everybody was into. 
and uh, oh, it would be and the Patrick Moore Sky at Night books. Yeah, but also people would get really excited about it, and I think like recently, there's I don't know, maybe it's been with uh, you know Elon Musk company and stuff. There's been space, but it's kind of not been that exciting, and it's not been that hyped. Now this game is about the launch of a newer telescope, which is going to come out, which is the uh, Roman Space Telescope, which is. Basically, after the Hubble telescope came out, this is a, a new, better telescope that's coming out. And it's going to be able to, like, you know, look a lot further and be able to reveal a lot of things. Now, that's not massively exciting. Back back in the days, it would have been quite exciting. But We might see aliens, Ravi. That could be amazing. <laughs> Maybe they'll find aliens or a planet full of Dan Woods. But um, <laughs> planet of amigas. But yeah, I, I find it interesting that NASA's actually trying to get people engaged doing a game, and just to see a game on a .gov domain as well is uh, pretty pretty interesting as well. What do you guys think? Yeah, because this looks really old school. I mean, they've gone for that kind of pixel eight bit graphics, and actually, the article on CNET says it's perfect for Stranger Things fans. We're reveling in 80s nostalgia right now. It does feel like, I mean, you know, Kate Bush running up that hill. It's like being top five in the UK charts again, thanks to Stranger Things. Well, it's also like, week. I don't know if you've seen the film Mar- The Martian, like uh, where they try yes, to get yeah, interest yeah. back into NASA and back into space and the public aren't really kind of going for it or they're not as feverish as they were before. I think, I think like something like this, it's sad that it's kind of needed, but they're, trying to hit the right direction and the right audience and get people back into it. Um, yeah, I, I love space. I've always loved space, and I think we should talk more about space on the podcast as well. I, I do love that the you know the game Roman Space Observer, it's written in the Space Invaders-like font, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, it's very self-aware, which I do really like about it, and I was playing it before we you know joined the chat today i was uh took me a minute to figure out what i was meant to be doing um i thought it was going to be like the old flash helicopter game where you were like you know which which like all of them have been like recently like say so many different companies are doing it uh didn't dell do it and i think jennifer lopez did it at some point yeah yeah um but it's not like that it's you know it's, it's a little bit more like asteroids but without shooting you just have to kind of fly over everything and you know land on it and click on it um which is pretty fun but like you say, I think it is just to build that hype about space again. Yeah, and, and like maybe say, get, get kids interested. like asking what is a exoplanet or what's you know dark mm. matter and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, they're right; it does kind of play into into that Stranger Things kind of yeah kind of concept of an alternate world and stuff like that. And you know, getting people like excited about something else or, or, or what could be out there. Yeah, the 80s are so hot right now, so it does seem uh, you know, a good way to get it in front of people. So if you want to play that, um, you can play it in your web browser right now. We'll link that up in our show notes as well. Now, of course, we had uh, John St. John, the voice of Duke Nukem, who we, we regard as you know the official voice of Duke Nukem, on the show a couple of weeks ago. And we did ask him about, you know, is there a possibility of a Duke Nukem movie? And he said, well, there is a script out there, but he's not sure if it will happen anytime soon. Then literally, last week, it got announced that apparently... The team behind Cobra Kai are working on a movie adaptation of Duke Nukem. They've been listening to the podcast as well, haven't they? What can they sell to Joe? (laughs) (laughs) What can they make him go watch? It's you know what, like when when we had John on, he said it wouldn't work without CGI, and um, he also said, you know, it's it's got to be really out there. It's got to be like 
pretty brutal. It's got to have some like edgy jokes. Watching Cobra Kai, I felt that they got that tone right. Like with Cobra Kai, they had, you know, 80s throwback and stuff that's not seen as uh, amazingly PC today. They they talked a lot about that, dealing with that kind of culture um, from, mm. you know, uh, like the actual Cobra Kai group. And uh, they they also had mega violence in there as well, which really when I first originally watched the series, I was like, oh, quite surprised by how violent it actually got. I was like, wow, it took me back a bit. And um, yeah, I think... If anybody could do it, you know, they seem to have bought an 80s brand back well and kind of, uh, you know, bought it into relevant modern times and uh, kind of jazzed it up a bit. Hopefully it will work with Duke. Well, they're saying here, if you look through the comments on this um, Kotaku article, that'll link in the show notes, some people are saying in there that, you know, Duke Nukem's a franchise from the 90s that, you know, people don't know today. Young people are not going to know it, so it's not going to work. But you can say the same about Karate Kid and Cobra Kai. Yeah, exactly. They managed to span the generations with that, didn't they? And bring it back for a new audience. And, it, and they did it in a funny way. They had, like, you know, yeah. the original people were out of touch. They were, like, still fighting this stupid fight that was, wasn't relevant to anything, you know. And uh, hopefully they could do that with uh, this approach. I'm hoping... I mean, it does make sense, but when we did have John on, he said the only way he thinks it would work is if Duke has a son who's, like, trying to keep him in line. So Duke has aged. Duke is, you know, a 50 or 60-year-old bloke, like, it's 30 years later kind of thing. Like Johnny Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. And it is literally, you know, he now has a son who is, like, telling him these things aren't PC. Because that is, that is kind of like Ravi says, that is kind of what happens in Cobra Kai. You know, he's got the lad that he trains in the first, you know, first two seasons and stuff, kind of keeping Johnny on the straight and narrow with what he can and can't say and what's kind of PC and stuff because of Duke Nukem is of his time, you know, so, it, but it is difficult because of, I do, there is that argument of there, would I want it as real life or CG? Because I, I think CG would be fun, but then would I want it live action, you know, and I, and would I want it to be like Deadpool and that ultra silly, ultra violence, or do you want it to be a little bit more serious? You know, people are calling for John Cena to play him, but I don't know. I think John Cena has the look and he obviously has the muscles and everything, but does he have the funniness and the voice? Do you know what I mean? You know, and John St. John, I have him on Facebook and he posted about it the other day and he was like, oh, interesting that this is actually going ahead now. Um, So he's not involved. But at the moment he said that he isn't, well, he didn't put whether he's involved or not, but he said he would love to voice him or at least the very least have a cameo of some sort in the movie. He's got, they've got to at least give him that. Yeah, yeah they've got to give him a cameo, surely. And, and to be honest, like, the CG thing, like, I, I always prefer live action. Like, the only CG thing I like is, like, Ratatouille and stuff like that. <laughs> the Disney so, stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, for me, if it was CG, I probably wouldn't watch it, to be honest. Like, um, Oh, you've got to. The retro yeah, hour. no, no. <laughs> even, even Sonic, I couldn't stand... <laughs> says a man that didn't watch Sonic the Hedgehog for about a year. <laughs> <laughs> but, I've watched um, it now. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I think this seems to be good and hopefully riding off the success of Cobra Kai, you know, um, yeah, it, it could be interesting if, if they do the right approach, if they get the right people involved, if they get the right actors as well. And I think humour-wise, they did get the tone of humour right with Karate Kid and it was like self-deprecating as well. It was taking yeah. the mick out of itself. And they also twisted it as well, which hopefully they could do with uh, Duke, you know, twist the kind of storyline or make it 
you know, I don't know, was Duke a good guy or a bad guy? Like, you know, that could be an interesting dynamic to play with. Yeah, because I mean, this could be terrible. But I've got a feeling that you know, it yeah. doesn't. Every video game music, uh, every video game mo- movie has the potential to be terrible, doesn't it? But I think they've got the right team there. I mean, if Cobra Kai can do it that well with Karate Kid, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on them now. You know, another big franchise. Yeah, that, you exactly. Know, everyone's going to be expecting good things from it. So um, that's all we know so far. I mean, there's been no other announcements, but obviously one that we'll keep an eye on. Now, Joe, you're a bit distracted before we play today. You've been playing. Uh, <laughs> Elden Ring that's been demade for the Game Boy that you can play in a web browser. This is awesome. I said it earlier on today. I I am a modern gamer as well as a retro gamer, and I have been loving Elden Ring. I'm like 120 hours into it, like doing everything you can possibly do in it, trying to 100% it. You know, I've got a kid, so I only get to play it for okay, a, couple of, a couple of hours at night. Explain to me what it is. Sorry. So I've, Elden, heard, Elden, I've, I've seen all the streams <laughs> streaming it. I've heard of the name. So I'm like, it's, the, is, it's the latest game yeah. from From Software. And From Software are responsible. For those who don't know, they made the Souls games. So Demon okay. Souls, Dark Souls, Bloodburn, Sekiro. The, the ultra hard RP, action RPG games. And essentially those games are quite linear. They're, they're built in quite big worlds, you know. But they're always quite linear, like, do you want to go this way or do you want to go that way? Like, do you want to go through the graveyard or do you want to go through the town kind of thing? You know, it, it's not as simple as that, but you, the, the explorate, exploration of them and stuff isn't that grand. Elden Ring is essentially the latest game from them. It's very much like Dark Souls. It so plays it's like exactly. action RPG. It's an action RPG and it's hard as nails and... It's, but it's completely open world. It is massive. It's absolutely huge. And it's one so, of these games like Skyrim. You can go do, you just run off. You just kind of go, here's the game. Go do your thing. Go talk to people. Go find out what you're meant to go do. Do you know what I mean? Go to this so, castle. So or go how, to that how, cave. With N- NPCs and stuff. So like, how has this translated onto the <laughs> boy then? So, how have they created this so, open world? So now we've got that out of the way. It is. It's been ported to the Game Boy um, by a uh, a Reddit user called Shin. Um, he's responsible for the new Game Boy version. Um, it's very, very, very similar to the Zelda game, which came out on the Game Boy. You know, uh, which was remade recent. Well, I say recently, it was remade about three years ago now. But um, Zelda: Link's Awakening is really similar to that to a point where I think it's actually even using a lot of the same sprites and stuff. But essentially, he hasn't remade the entire game. He's 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 remade the first kind of couple of hours of the game um, and condensed it into about 20 minutes, half an hour worth of gameplay by the looks of things. Um, because, like, as you say, how are you going to get this, like, big 200-hour game, 100-hour game onto a Game Boy? Well, I think the bottom line is you can't. Um, you just have a... You take liberties with it and have a bit of fun. But if you're a fan of Elden Ring and you're a fan of Game Boy games and retro games... You can play it in browser, which obviously Dan will link up and everything like that, which is really cool. And it's still there from software. I haven't made him take it down or anything like this. Yeah, um, that's it, another point. And so, it, was, yeah. it was uploaded on the 3rd of June and we're two weeks in now. So it, it, it's still there at this point. Like I say, it looks just like Zelda Link's Awakening. Um, but one of, the, one of the really cool things is, is there is the From Software games, they have a rolling mechanic in it. So a lot of the gameplay is based on, you know, it's all swords and sorcery. So, you know, using your sword and shield and stuff or using your, your magic. But when you get attacked, you can you can roll out of the way. So there's a big rolling mechanic in these games and they've got the rolling mechanic in, in the Game Boy version. So you can roll into the enemies and roll away from them and stuff like that. 
which I think they've done really, really well. Um, but essentially, the game has only got the first three bosses by the looks of things to play, or first four bosses, I think it might be. I was playing it earlier on and I was having fun with it. Really hard, just like the actual Elden Ring game. But to kind of put that into perspective, there's over 250 bosses in the actual Elden Ring. So I don't think they would have ever fit in there. And I couldn't find the leveling up system or anything like that. The actual kind of RPG elements don't seem to be there. It seems to be more just action orientated. Does it play on the original Game Boy? Or is is it just browser based? This is the thing. In In his video... In the trailer for it, he has it running on a Game Boy. I, I can see it on his website. If you scroll down after the player, there is uh, two download links, one for the Game Boy. Brilliant. There we go. Um, a ROM file and one for the Enlo Pocket as well. Oh, fantastic. So you can play it on Game Boy. So you can play on Game Boy, which is really cool, but you can play it in browser, which is probably, for the simpletons like me, the easier version. That's what I was doing, but it, it, it looks so familiar. Like, I know this doesn't mean anything to you guys, but like, I walked off and instantly found one of the first bosses, which is called the Tree Sentinel. And I was like, oh, it's the Tree Sentinel boss. Like, and that's cool. And it, it, it's, it's fun. You know, like I say, it looks just like Link's Awakening, but there's a, quite a full playable game here, you know, which, I mean, if you can play it on Game Boy, it'll keep you busy, I guess, for a couple of hours. Yeah, we do love these D-makes as well, so it's always nice to, uh, to see a new one. So if you want to download that, I'll put that. And everything else we talk about, all the stories every week, you don't have to Google around. We put them all in our show notes for you in your podcast app, or you can head to our website. You'll find them all at theretrohour.com. Now, before we chat to this week's special guest, Randy Breen, Road Rash special coming up in just a moment, let's give a big thank you to... One of our loyal supporters of the Retro Hour, who've supported this podcast for how many years now at Future Publishing, lent their support to this show. And we love Future many Publishing. Years. We've got a, many years. Yeah, I've been reading Future Publishing magazine since I was about 10 years old as well. So it's incredible to have them supporting our podcast. And not only do they celebrate retro video games in, of course, Retro Gamer Mag and several others that they do as well, that you know, if you enjoy our podcast, you should be reading that each and every month. But also, they celebrate current-gen consoles too. And we want to give you a chance to get three issues of your favourite future publishing gaming mag for just one pound. So that is an incredible saving of up to 95% off the cover price, just for listeners of the Retro Hour. And this is available on all of Future's gaming mags, of course Retro Gamer, but also Play, Edge and PC Gamer as well. You've actually got Edge in front of you right now, Ravi. Yeah, because I actually do this deal. So I get Edge. Every single release, and it's just like absolutely awesome, Re- really good. A uh, great magazine about the kind of future of gaming, and they're looking at Cuphead, the delicious last course, which is the new DLC for Cuphead, the Evil Dead game as well. They've got an interview in here with uh, John Romero as well, which is uh, he's weighing in on nearly 40 years of uh, games development and coding, and they're also looking at the return of a uh, kind of smart glasses which is interesting mm. uh who remembers the google glass that wasn't uh, massively popular was it uh the new play magazine as well if you're a fan of the playstation actually it's a bit of a retro theme to play magazine this month yeah they're actually covering the 100 greatest playstation games from all time going from ps1 all the way up to ps5 so they've kind of gone through all 28 years of the playstation which makes me feel so old 28 years Um, But they're covering off their top 100 greatest PlayStation games of all time, which just looks really, really cool. And like you say, it's got a retro feel. You know, there's Papa the Rapper, Time Splitters on the front cover there, Resident Evil on the cover there, as well as God of War and Nathan Drake and GTA and all that kind of stuff. So 
if you're into your retro stuff, this month's play does look right up our street as well. And they do PC Gamer, um, covering Dune, Spice Wars, and uh, Overwatch 2, the cover feature. And, of course, Retro Gamer magazine. Uh, this month, the cover feature is a special all about Sonic Origins that, of course, we've been talking about. And they kind of go, you know, to celebrate Sonic's birthday right behind the scenes of this. Um, and also, you get a fantastic 32-page mini-magazine detailing their favourite Sonic the Hedgehog moments too. So if you want to check out any of those future magazines, of course, by taking up these offers, you're really supporting the Retro Hour podcast as well. So get three issues of your favourite future gaming magazine for just £1 by using our special link, and they'll know that we sent you, and of course we get credit for that, magazinesdirect.com slash retro hour. So open a new tab in your browser or your phone right now, type this in, you'll get three issues of those incredible magazines for just a pound, magazinesdirect.com slash retro hour, and save up to 95% on Retro Gamer Edge Play or PC Gamer, and a big thank you to our friends at Future Publishing for their support of our show. And get it quickly as well, because we have so many people saying, oh, I tried to redeem your offer, do it now at the time. Right, the next time to get the inside story on the classic Road Rage games with our special guest, Randy Breen, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on a very special guest. Now this week, someone who's been behind some of our favourite games of all time. We can't wait to get stories about working with companies like Electronic Arts, games like Road Rash and uh, lots more as well. Let's welcome on our fabulous guest this week, the wonderful Randy Breen. How you doing, Randy? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us now. Before we get into the... uh, the stories of these incredible companies and the games that you've worked on. We always kind of like to, you know, take it back to day one with our guests and find out kind of where your story began. I mean, do you remember what first got you into video games? Do you remember your first ever video game experience? Uh, you know, for me, I think it was more of a transition from pinball machines to video games. When I was a kid, the the bowling alleys uh, were a usual stop on the way home from school. And you know, the, the pinball machines kind of dominated that experience. Uh, and I had a couple friends, family friends that had uh, pinball machines in their house. And so that, you know, that was a, you know, it was a hobby of sorts. Uh, and I, th- you know, I think that the Atari was, was the machine that really gave me the sense of what that potential was as it, you know, transitioned from pinball machines to, you know, some kind of graphic adventure. And, you know, I, I, uh, I never owned an Atari. You know, I think that um, as they came out, I was becoming an adult. I went into the Navy. I was in the Navy for six years. And in the Navy, I I discovered computer games. uh, And there was a collection of us that gathered around, you know, one PC and then played wizardry and, you know, mapped out the dungeon on a graph paper because you had to remember where you were going. And you know, I just, uh, that and some combination of dungeon and dragon experiences with those people as a tabletop game that led me into, to computer games, I think. And I bought my first computer when I was still in the Navy. And, and really it was one of the things that got me a job in electronic arts, because when I got out of the Navy, I was, you know, I was interested in going back to school, finishing an engineering degree. And I was looking for a summer job. I, uh, applied for a technical role uh, at at EA accidentally, 
you know, the fact that I was, that I owned a computer, that I was a hobbyist, that was one of the things that caught their eye apart from my, you know, technical background in the military. I was wondering, like, you were a general technician, so you worked with all the different departments and you worked on some different titles. What were, like, the differences uh, with, like, EA Sports and stuff, and how, how did you see the company growing? You know, I was only in, in this technical role for a little over six months. So I came in, you know, I was, you know, doing whatever needed to be done, which included just setting people's equipment up, you know, that were not necessarily as computer savvy or, you know, setting up internal networks for the, uh, for the office, that sort of thing. Uh, also etching the PC boards for our own artist workstations. So that was really kind of a generalized experience. So I, I touched a lot of departments through that, all of the departments really. But when I went into production, you know, I, I was assigned a few projects and basically as an assistant producer, you were really kind of attached at the very end of the projects. And I was attached to some, well, I was attached to some uh, notable things. One of the, one of them was Madden football. And this was, this was the first Madden football. It was before uh, EA sports existed. Uh, EA sports became a brand, you know, it was uh, EASN before it was EA sports. At the time, you know, no one knew that sports were going to become the the major segment, and really the the biggest, you know, branding uh, component of Electronic Arts. But you know, at the time, Madden Football was uh, <laughs> it was a title that, that was originally designed for the Apple IIc and the C sixty four, and it had been in development for almost five years, and they were, you know, they were struggling. Um, but uh, you know, I I helped get that pro- those two products finished and out the door, and then I actually later as an associate producer, I produced uh, the second Madden Football, and you know, I I was happy to do those projects, and you know, I mean, privileged in a way, but I didn't have a passion for sports products, and and it was it had more to do with the creative content. Uh, I, you know, I could tell even in the very early days that it was, you know, there was a certain grind to the work that is, it was, it was, it was both somewhat easier because you didn't have to reproduce the product once it got on an annual schedule, once they started releasing annualized products, you didn't have to replace the engine every year, you replace the stats. And so periodically you would replace the engine or do more major up updates, but that was less interesting to me. I mean, the creative content of, you know, the, the other titles that I worked on, I was, I was just more attracted to, you know, Red Rash is, is an example of that. And, you know, and and another dovetail into the Road Rash is that prior to Road Rash, I'd worked on a series of, a series of driving games. And I I was passionate about driving games, mainly because I was a motorcyclist and it was a hobby you know, there was something about the experience of driving that is that it's experiential more so than as most of the sports franchises. And I think that, um, you know, those driving games led me to the conclusion there was an opportunity to, to reach a wider audience with entertainment elements that combined with the driving experience. And that's what, that's what really led to Road Rush. I know that Road Rush, obviously, I mean, legendary game and Ravi and I 
massive fans of it. I mean, you know, for so many incredible memories of playing that as a kid. And was that the, the first kind of in-house type of game EA that was developed? You know, that there was a lot of pressure to get right then? I mean, what, what are your kind of your memories of those initial concept in the early days of Road Rash? Well, so, you know, uh, it was one of the first, there were, there were more than one in development simultaneously, but, uh, you know, Road Rash was really one of the first wholly internally developed titles. Uh, prior to that, you know, in the early days of EA, it was established as a publisher. And, and what that means is that it's similar to books and, and music at the time, um, where a publisher would sign an artist um, and, and EA used to refer to them as EA artists. You know, if you're familiar with the early campaigns at EA, there was, there was a series of ads that were done. You know, Trip Hawkins came out of, of Apple yeah, and and had these experiences with Apple from a marketing standpoint, and he brought some of those styles into EA, and they were provocative statements. and And the idea that artists that that these groups were treated as artisans was a was a new idea, and the packaging was unusual. It was they were like mini albums, you know? They weren't quite as big as a, a long play record, but you know maybe two thirds the size, but it was, they were thin. They, you know, they, they had flat copy. They usually opened up and they had uh, graphics and other material inside the package. And so the, you know, the nature of the relationship with these creators was, was um, really uniquely established with EA. And what that meant was that basically EA would sign the artist. uh, They would fund the projects the projects were milestone based. And so you would manage the titles externally and they would hit a milestone and then get paid for the next uh, segment of the project. And so there were checkpoints. And, and as a producer, you were managing that process. You were both helping the artist um, you know, by giving them context for uh, how people perceive what they were doing um, and feedback from the various groups, you know, stakeholders at Electronic Arts, like marketing um, and sales. Uh, and internally, you were representing the, the artist and, and presenting the materials to more or less a board uh, that, you know, reviewed these milestones and approved them as a group. And, for, you know, as a young producer, that was a, it really exposed me to all aspects of the business, finance, legal, marketing, sales. And so, Coming back to the question, these processes that were developed, they were really developed to, you know, extend the publishing process to these outside organizations. Well, what gradually started to happen was that we ended up with a variety of hybrid situations. And I I was a producer on one of those, along with uh, Paul Grace, you know, who's a longtime friend and colleague. The two of us discovered an artist that had a technology, but didn't really have a game design that we felt uh, was, was going to meet the market. And so we collaborated with the artist who was really an engineer, a programmer. You know, basically I kind of acted as a, as a designer. I established some of the uh, art content uh, internally and Paul and I managed the project collectively. He was more, project manager of sorts. That was 680 at Taxub. And that that title did pretty well. 
you know, but it was a, it was an asset. It was basically leading the company into, you know, this, this realm of doing some of the work internally. And there were a couple other groups, um, you know, Mike Kasaka in, in particular, um, you know, at, started as an, as an internal artist and then kind of migrated into a, a designer producer role as well. And so there were these projects that didn't fit the original model, uh, but EA started to realize there was some benefits to being able to have that expertise in house. And so that, that led to the subject at hand, which is, you know, Road Rash was one of the first fully internal, uh, internally developed titles. And it was compounded by the fact, you know, one of the rationales that, that really drove the company to do this was also that there was this period where EA considered, you know, reverse engineering the set. Well, they did reverse engineer the Sega Genesis before it was released. By doing that, it gave them leverage for negotiating an agreement with Sega for licensing. Uh, and and uh, eventually they became a license, a licensee, but it wasn't clear when we were originally developing Road Rash that was going to be the case. So we were just it's developing not- Sega titles for the launch in the U.S. It migrated into an official title through that development period. It's a pretty kind of hardcore way of getting into the console market, reverse engineering <laughs> products. You have to remember that at the time, uh, EA had not really entered the console market in earnest, you know, there was a couple titles on the 8-bit Nintendo. EA Europe had started, but, you know, had done some things, but kind of independently of the U.S. office. And the company really had internal struggle with, you know, with how to treat console versus PC, because from a financial standpoint, PC was far more attractive because it didn't carry the license. Uh, and a lot of it also had to do with the hardware nature of the console business. That is, those cartridges were horrifically expensive because it was you had to you know, manufacture hardware to produce each unit. And that meant that the cost of goods were very high. Uh, and it meant that, you know, in order to fulfill the product at retail, you had to carry a huge balance sheet. Uh, and everyone had this, the presence of... The Atari collapse in the in the mid '80s was still in everyone's mind, and there were there were even a, a couple of senior people at EA that came out of Atari. They just didn't want to go back to that. So I, like- I, I think that it was hard for the company to overcome that. But by the time the Genesis was coming, it was pretty clear um, that they, you know, in order to be competitive, they needed to be in the market. And I guess like Electronic Arts had a good background with tools as well with stuff like developing deluxe paint and uh you know that whole kind of suite there must have been a good set of resources to go into developing your own titles yes that's right and uh you know those started out as developer tools uh but there was there was there was an opportunity for the company to have have really maintained a division uh that might be similar to what adobe is now uh, it's just that it, it couldn't find the, the mind space to maintain that, unfortunately. But I, you know, in my view, that was a missed opportunity for EA. You know, I, I think it's hard to say whether it could have been successful or not because, you know, obviously it's a pretty different business model, and 
you know, I just think that from a financial standpoint and from a creative standpoint, the the company was was capable of of doing more things, and and it chose to really just stay focused on games. Well, I was also wondering, like, where did the concept originally come from? You mentioned that you were a biker. Were you like watching? Lots of Akira, or had you seen any biker gangs fighting <laughs> yeah. with chains or anything? Yeah, no. Um, you know, I, I I had mentioned that you know I had worked on these driving games, you know, which included Indianapolis 500, which was produced by Papyrus before they became independent. Well, uh, they went they they published for they published under Virgin for a while, I think. But <clears throat> you know, Indy 500 was one of the one of the first, if not the first, fully 3D simulations for driving. And it was, I mean, it was fantastic, uh, you know, for its time, but it was also horribly difficult. <laughs> and, and so, you know, if you didn't have a very high sensitivity to what to look for in order to sense what the car was doing and, and then maintain concentration long enough, you would, you could have a miserable experience because it would you know, it's just so challenging to to control the car with a keyboard. And so it kind of informed me that, you know, there's this opportunity. There were people that wanted to play it, but really couldn't experience it. And even some of the people that might enjoy aspects of it really didn't have the patience to just stay intently concentrated on simply making small adjustments to maintain you know, lap times, lap after lap that, you know, some people just don't have that mindset. And so I was kind of adamant that there was an opportunity to do something with entertainment in that, you know, while still having a, an experiential kind of, you know, environment. And, um, you know, I, I, there were a number of car games with guns on them and, and so on. And I just thought that that was a little too, it it just didn't seem to make sense. I mean, for one thing, you're you're trying to drive in one direction and and aim in another direction, and it just you know it didn't it didn't hold together in my mind, both from a fantasy standpoint or from you know a, an interactivity standpoint. And so, the thing that struck me with motorcycles was that you know first of all I was toying with uh, racing, and you know the the competition even in those I mean, this goes back, you know, far, far bef- before the computer game industry, but, you know, motorcycle competition can get kind of physical. And it's interesting because you can see the rider on the machine as opposed to, you know, a car where you might see the, the helmet sticking out, you know, in an open cockpit. Um, and the fact that the rider is, is fully visible, I thought was, was kind of exciting, you know, that there was an opportunity to create drama from, you know, that, that physicality. And, you know, the, uh, the other thing, um, you know, well, what I was getting at with the racing is that in racing, it's not unusual for these riders to kind of elbow and kick each other. And, you know, it's not very common, but it happens. And, you know, I think that I put that together. There was, you know, I was a fan of Akira. And in fact, uh, you know, in my presentation for the concept, I presented both these shots of, you know, what's the equivalent of MotoGP, you know, where riders were actually shoving off each other, you know, entering a turn, and also some of the gang material from 
uh, Akira, along with some other things, uh, the bike pump scene from uh, Breaking Away. Uh, for me, it was always like there was a certain edginess with bikers, um, especially like biker gangs. And uh, we have the Isle of Man TT races here and they're absolutely insane. So like yeah. it, it really yeah. fit into that kind of idea of, you know, I'm, I'm playing an edgy game um, and, it, and, it, and it really yeah. kind of changed the demographic, especially stuff like winning prizes between the racers and uh ideas like that yeah really really like the concept behind it yeah well there was one other technical thing that was one of the rationales for the product i mean for me it was really just a justification because i wanted i really wanted to do a motorcycle game anyway but for you know for a publisher there were a number of people that were expressing the idea well you know people are more into cars than they are motorcycles and and you know, my argument for that is, well, they may not want to own a motorcycle, but I think it's more aspirational. And, yeah. and so, you know, people that wouldn't necessarily go buy a motorcycle or, or, you know, think to do this in real life might express the fantasy of it in a way that, you know, a car seems a little more ordinary. No, that's right. And, 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 and the fact that they're super bikes as well really changes it. Yeah. Like if, if you were in a, a kind of Harley Davidson or something, I think it would probably be a totally different game. Well, and, and in fact, that was an argument that I'll, you know, internally that I'll, I can come back to, but the, the technical element was that with, with the Sega, you could only have seven sprites on a line. And if you displayed eight, they would start to disappear randomly. You know, it's it's just a buffer issue. And and the the fact that you have these moving elements, these sprites, which the the motorcycle is made up of, um, you know, you can't really tell where things are going to be if you have a really wide range of situations. And, you know, it's not just the bikes. It's also like the trees that were, alongside the road or just objects that are incidental uh, apart from the road effect itself. And so one of the things that's interesting about, you know, the motorcycles is that they're vertical. So this, the Sprite body is stacked vertically, whereas a car was more horizontal. And, and so to represent the car in a meaningful way that it was large enough, you, you actually ran more risk of, running into the Sprite issue um, if the car was bigger. And, and so with the bikes, we could actually afford to make the characters a little larger uh, because they were vertical for the most part. I was wondering, going from the kind of two-player option in, in the first one of, you know, taking turns to split screen uh, for the mm-hmm. second, was that a huge challenge? Well, so we, we wanted to do the... Uh, the split screen all along, you know, all of us felt strongly that it's the kind of game that would be more enjoyable to be able to play with someone else. You know, the problem was it was just too much work to get that done in the first project. And, you know, this was really not an unusual situation for first generation titles is that you have all these ideas, you're trying to produce something uh, in in a period that's described, you don't know how long that's going to be because there's a certain element of ex- experimentation. And then you start to have to pull back on 
aspirations. And one of those was the split screen, you know, wasn't going to make the first cut uh, before we were at a point where the company needed us to ship the title. And, and it was also the fact that, you know, it's original title. So there was no idea whether it was going to be successful or not. And so, you know, we needed to get one out into the market to just know that there was an audience for this thing. But the, you know, by the time we were finished, it was already clear it was going to be successful enough to justify a sequel. And we rolled right into the sequel from that. And, and we had a long list of things that we wanted to do. And Split Screen was just one of those. So the, the second title was actually, it was probably the most efficient because it, it was very, very clear uh, right from the outset what we wanted to do. And we already had a team that was up and running and, and effective. Well, obviously, I mean, it was a massive franchise by now. Um, and when we got to the third game, Road Rash 3, that felt like it was really pushing the hardware of the 16-bit consoles, you know. Felt like, the, you know, the Sega Genesis was creaking a bit under Road Rash 3. Yeah. What features do you wish you could have added to that title then? And were there, like, limitations on the hardware that meant that you couldn't? I mean, at this point, it's a little hard for me to parse that because these things kind of blur together over time. And, you know, I think that you're trying to, you know, both add enough material to rationalize or justify the value of another sequel. And I think that that leads you to stretch out and and try and do things that may have seemed less practical when you were starting out. And and so I think that it was really just kind of a natural extension of that process. And, you know, by the time that that title was, was finished, you know, the Genesis was being superseded. So, you know, my focus was actually split at that point, I was, you know, I was first on the third generation title fully. And then over the course of development, I became more and more focused on the 3DO title, which was started in parallel, but uh, I ended up moving over more, more completely to towards the end. Well, the 3DO, I mean, obviously EA had a big connection there with, you know, Trip yeah. heading 3DO um, and, and that version as well. I remember, you know, I've got a 3DO. If I, if I set it up, that is still my go-to game, you know, to play first on the 3DO. I nice. love that version of Road Rash on yeah. there. And, you know, when I first saw that that digitized FMV, you know, that was at the beginning as well. I mean, that was yeah. mind-blowing for the time. H- how did you kind of take advantage to this system having more power then? And um, what kind of happened there then? What, what, what did you put in there? Well, you know, the, the video was, uh, was something that I really pitched hard, but it wasn't really part of the initial project. I mean, the the project started off focused on, on the game content as it should. The focus was on really improving the graphics uh, and the performance. And, you know, the, the, the machine really allowed us to do a, a variety of things that weren't possible. I mean, obviously just the expression of more color um, was huge and more detail uh, in the scenes, more objects, but um, there was a number of things that were, you know, we took different, me- you know, instead of hand-drawn animation, we actually did a rotoscope uh, by setting up in a photographer's studio. We set up, you know, a range of cameras around a rider that was st- positioned on a motorcycle, and the motorcycle is still at EA. 
you know, at the time I, I was arguing to buy a motorcycle for the purpose of creating the animation and no one had bought a prop before like that. <laughs> and, and, and they just thought that it was ridiculous that I was arguing that we should buy a motorcycle, at, you know, a software company. Um, but I got approved to do that. And then we created a set of leathers that were, you know, the, the most obnoxious colors you can imagine. But against a green screen, we could pull the, you know, the animation off the background. I should say we can pull each each frame of the animation off the background and then recolor them because they were effectively encoded, you know, physically. And that led to, you know, I think both, you know, much higher quality animation just because of the amount of material we could create. You know, I think that it made the scenes more authentic and we did similar things with the cars and so on. You know, the, the set, you know, the scene wasn't quite as elaborate because the focus was on the writers, but um, the content for that game, it was challenging. And it was also, I think, rewarding because it, it started to produce material that really we, we weren't able to create up to that point, you know, and, and that said, you know, by the time we started to see the game coming together and, it, and, you know, there's also, I, I think, you know, Lori Washbon in particular, uh, did a, an amazing job from an art standpoint in creating a look. Louis Shremack is another uh, artist that's, you know, notable for that, you know, creating that style. It was um, um, amazing, the menus and the, the, the yeah. way that characters were drawn on there. It really had yeah. a, a great identity. Yeah. No, and, and, and I think that that aspect of the product was, was really, I, I think, shining. And at the same time, we, we had this CD and we had all of the space that, yeah, that we had the potential of utilizing. And I just felt like there was an opportunity to do more from an entertainment space. And there was, you know, there was kind of a history from the Sega that, that led to it because we had these, these little vignettes at the end of, of the, the races on the Genesis that were simple animations. And so they really became a touch point for what could be done with video. And then that led to the video vignettes that went into the 3D version, which we produced towards the end of the project. I know that version as well that also came out on the original PlayStation, and yeah. you know, that was a great version of, of Road Rash on the PlayStation. Yeah. Then we got to um, Road Rash 3D on the PlayStation yeah. as well, I mean, which was you know, a bit of a departure, obviously, had the kind of um, the Polygon 3D graphics in there. Yeah. How was it like working on that project, and what were the challenges of doing that? Uh, so, you know, in the end, we, we produced a product that was successful, but it was a struggle. Um, you know, the, the fact is that it, you know, the, I think that this is one of the things that actually was a roadblock for, you know, excuse the pun, for Road Rash in, in the sense that, you know, the, the early products were, you know, sprite-based games. The transition to 3D was coming. We all knew it. I, I was producing 3D products alongside these, you know, animated sprite-based products. And, and at the same time, I felt like different technologies – need to be applied for different subjects appropriately. You know, I thought that the Sprite technology was, was effective for what Road Rash was, and it was effective even on the PlayStation 1, you know, in its first title. But transitioning to 
3D was becoming so obvious to people that everybody, you know, it's like uh, you've probably heard the expression, everything black, would, you know, in this case, mm. everything 3D, you know, so there was an assumption that we would just make a 3D product because that's, that's where the technology was going. And as much as I wanted to do that, I, you know, I knew what the challenges were. Uh, and, you know, I, I had relationships with the guys at DSI, which became EA Canada. You know, we did a driving game together when I was a producer and they were an external artist and they were eventually acquired and, and that studio developed and that, you know, that studio developed Need for Speed. When you look at the two products from a technical standpoint at the time, that is the Red Rush 3D and, and Need for Speed, and I'm talking about the f- first 3D iterations of each, you know, I was really measured by the same measure uh, that they were, which is, you know, how, how big is the staff? How much does it cost? How, you know, how long did it take to make the product? Um, you know, how much revenue is it going to generate? And the issue is that if you have a, a polygon object that is, is more or less uh, a, a series of, of triangles that, you know, are s- stacked boxes and then maybe have, you know, special conditions to animate the rear window and the front tires, um, the, then, you know, th- that, that technical challenge is very different than animating a, a figure on an object that itself is more complicated than the car and then have detachable elements from it, like, you know, the clubs and chains, um, and the rider itself needs to detach <laughs> and articulate. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm trying to explain this to people, you know, that this is, this is a hard problem to solve when you're dealing with a very simplistic set of polygons, you know, and, at some point, I, I think I, I just became entirely frustrated by the fact that, you know, there didn't seem to be an understanding that the nature of our problem was harder. And it wasn't that it wasn't unsolvable. It, it was going to take more time to do it. And, you know, so that, that period was not a happy moment for me, I'm afraid. Do you um, think... Well- but eventually, you know, the title was finished and it, and it, did, it did produce uh, good revenue. It just... I think that it it actually really kind of stalled future development. There were, you know, there was the one title after 3D, but um, by that time, that that was about the time that I I was leaving EA. Do you think we'll ever see a, a Road Rush game in the future? And uh, have you played Road Redemption as well, which is kind of a uh, a modern Road Rush inspired I, game? I have played Road Redemption. It's been a while, and EA's tried a number of times. You know, they there was an effort to produce a new one even before I left. <laughs> These things, you know, they take the right collection of people and those people need to have a vision for what they're doing. And EA struggled with original titles at that point in time. You know, I love the fact that we had produced an original title and, and the, you know, the reality was that it was more profitable. Even if it didn't sell more units, it was more profitable than most of the other titles because it didn't have the license fee on it. And I just love the fact that we were creating something. And, you know, we tried to do a couple other originals internally and, and those didn't make the market because the, the company gradually become, became less comfortable taking those risks. 
And those risks are meaningful because, uh, you know, when you're getting into the console business and you're talking about requiring millions of units to be sold in order to overcome not just the development effort, but the, you know, the cost of goods, which even though it's a CD are expensive because there's a license fee on the CD. So, and you have to pay the license fee before the product is shipped. So it's effectively not very different than a hardware cost of goods. You know, you, you compound both the development cost, these material costs for packaging, and then uh, the marketing costs in order to drive enough sales that they overcome all of those things, you know, the company becomes more risk averse and that's why you see sequels and, and that, and, and I think that that's one of the drivers for EA sports, as we were talking about earlier, is that it's a very reliable business model. Well, a really interesting game um, that came out in the early nineties that you were involved with was a, a game called Labyrinth of Time. Yes. And I remember playing that on the, um, got the Commodore CD TV that was yeah. really, it was a, <laughs> An Amiga 500 in like a, a VCR kind of box with a CD-ROM yeah, drive on yeah, there. Yeah. Um, and I know it came out on the PC and also the CD32 console as well. Um, and that kind of reminded me a bit of, uh, you know, it was a beautiful game, a bit like Mist. I mean, it is. what kind of memories have you, yeah, what, what kind of memories have you got of that title then? It is, uh, you know, very much like Mist. And I think that it is interesting that you, you have a title like Mist that is, I, I think even now, you know, is is it's fairly widely known for to anybody that you know was was kind of you know part of the marketplace in in the 90s but you know you have other titles like the uh, labyrinth of time that really didn't quite break through that and you know they were for me they were early exercises in in what's possible for an immersive environment and you know i th- I, th- I thought it was you know labyrinth was a beautiful product but uh, you know it, it didn't uh, it didn't quite, you know, find the market to, you know, generate the, the excitement that Mist did. I thought those graphics, they must have took such a long time to render all of yeah. those 3D <laughs> yeah. graphics that you had in there. Yeah. Well, but, it, you know, rendering is an automated process once you've got it set up. So it's once you have the scene established, it becomes um, more production oriented. Uh, mm. Yeah. So there, there is some efficiency in that regard. Well, speaking of, you know, titles that I love back then as well, I mean, I was a big fan of Flashback. Um, yeah. That was one of my favorite kind of action-adventure games. And uh, Fade to Black was the sequel to that as well, um, which I right. you know you were the producer on that game. Yeah. Where did the idea of um, of that sequel come from then? And what was kind of the background on Fade to Black? Well, uh, you know, that was a relationship with, with Delphine that also, you know, was really two studios. It was the Fade to Black team was in Paris and the, and the Adeline team and. Twinson's adventure was uh, was in Lyon, and you know I, I think that those are titles that I, you know I had a relationship with EA Europe, and uh, and it led me to produce those titles. But it was really those those were you know visions that came from each of those two studios, and they were really more in the tradition of the you know the early EA model where uh, developers you know, conceived of an idea and then present, you know, pitch that to you know, producers at EA or other, other publishers. And then we would sign them and, and help them bring those titles to market. So in, in both of those cases, I think that we were trying to help them understand how the U S market would perceive them. You know, I think both of those titles 
you know, they were more popular in Europe than they were in the U.S. And part of that is the, you know, the U.S. can be kind of idiosyncratic. And uh, it's not so much necessarily that the audience didn't exist. I think that in a lot of cases, uh, marketing and sales might have more challenge finding a way to speak to that audience and attract it. And, and I think that that was the case in, in both of those products. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Fade to Black. I mean, obviously, you know, Flashback was a 2D game. Mm. And then I found it a bit more difficult than, than Flashback. But I wonder, what, were there kind of challenges in taking, you know, a previously 2D universe and gameplay and transitioning that into 3D? Do you know if they kind of had any struggles there? Well, I think that that was true for most games that were transitioning in that regard for one way or, or another. You know, I was describing some of the technical issues associated with Road Rash coming to 3D. Uh, with regards to animated figures, uh, and and really, I, I think that in some ways it's more of a design challenge. And there was, there was an aspect of this with Road Rash as well. Road Rash had scrolling roads, basically, you know, you're moving... You're creating the illusion of of a road passing underneath you, you know, by the by having kind of a, a a cycling set of colors that represent you moving forward, and also scrolling the road side to side, which is how you represent turns. And so it's it's not unlike you know you're on an imaginary conveyor belt that has a potential to you know move right and left in front of you. You know, that creates certain constraints and makes the problem of movement moving through the world easier. Um, once you go to 3D, you know, you have the potential to turn around and go back the other way. And, you know, that that's a design challenge to establish both, you know, some constraint um, that, you know, that doesn't take you out of the world, uh, but also, um, you know, really find you know, reasons either to do it or not to do it and, and, and to make that enjoyable in all the conditions the game can be played. And, and so when you take a figure that can move around in a scene, if that figure is moving side to side, that is a very limited constraint that allows you to design to a very focused objective. And as soon as you have more of a freeform environment, you you have to build conditions for that, and and I think that that's the case here. Well, Randy, it's been amazing reminiscing on uh, you know just a small part of your your career that I know um, continues strong today. I mean, is there anything that you're working on these days then that we should look out for? Uh, you know, I'm advising for Amber Sword, which is uh, a blockchain product based in based out of Denmark. I've been involved in a variety of of MMOs, and uh, you know that goes back even before galaxies, uh, Star Wars galaxies. So I think that, first of all, the economy of MMOs uh, really lends itself to a blockchain uh, application. Uh, that is the ability to t- basically take the marketplace and externalize it. And I, you know, I've, I've felt for some time that, you know, that players really shouldn't be restricted to, you know, how they are able to transact on content that they've produced um, through their their activities but also through through collection or through crafting or through purchase and you know an example of this is you know you've been able to buy characters in MMOs for 
for years, but that's a gray market activity. So if, if you want to buy a character uh, from World of Warcraft, you can do it. But if you get caught, that account might get banned. And, you know, I, I think that I, I understand the, the argument. I mean, uh, at the time, uh, Sony Online was developing Star Wars Galaxies. And, you know, their, their point of view was that if you allow people to transact on, you know, and trade these characters, it has the potential to ruin the community. You know, I, even then I, I felt like that was an artificial uh, constraint. The real issue was they weren't participating in the transaction. Uh, so that's the first order issue is that <clears throat> they're not making any money from it. And, and they're, and they're thinking about their, their revenue stream associated with the time people stay in a title. This was a retention method. You know, at the same time, what I knew was that the people that were buying these titles were, or these characters were mostly people that wanted a second or third character because they didn't want to grind for a year or two to get to a reasonable level. And, and so they would, you know, skip past that by buying a character and then sometimes even running two characters simultaneously. The Amber Sword team both has a passion for these older style you know, MMOs, they come out of some of the traditional spaces. Uh, and they have a strong belief in this idea that opening these markets and allowing people to trade these things more more generously, I think, is uh, is in the interest of everyone. It's a different, a different business model, I think, that's quite exciting. Well, Randy, it's incredible to hear that, you know, the passion is still there and you're continuing to, you know, carve new paths for gaming as well. So if people want to check out um, Ember Sword and um, Bright Star Studios, I'll put a link in our show notes as well. Um, definitely have a look at that. And Randy, it's been incredible to um, reminisce with you as well. Thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 